I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. Today, we're talking to two journalists and veteran observers of the European Union about what's happened to the EU during this latest crisis with COVID-19 and what lessons we can learn from it about how to build a better and more effective international order. Uh, Welcome to the Order from Ashes podcast. Uh, I've got on the line from Brussels, uh, David Gareta, uh, an Italian journalist uh, for Il Folio and Radio Radicale. Uh, David, thanks for joining. Thank you to you. And also joining us on the line from Milan is Rola Scolari, a journalist for Il Folio and La Stampa. We're going to start this conversation by talking about what's actually happened uh, to the EU during this latest crisis. Uh, David, do you want to walk us through in a, in a couple of minutes how the, the EU has, has risen or, or not risen to the challenge? Well, it's difficult to say because the EU is not a state. It's uh, an international organization. Uh, uh, the European, European Union member states were uh, totally unprepared uh, 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 to, to this uh, pandemic. And they reacted uh, uh, one by one uh, in a typical national way. Uh, So they started to introduce lockdown, to close borders uh, between them, to stop uh, export of uh, um, protective material and other stuff quite important like uh, ventilators. the uh, EU institutions were uh, trying to coordinate the uh, action of member states, but uh, um, member states decided to go alone. And the result was uh, quite a mess, I would say, uh, with uh, people blocked uh, at borders, with uh, um, a lot of important material uh, blocked uh, at borders too um, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and and the result is uh, was uh, um, a situation uh, worsening day by day David let me just ask uh, I mean from an American perspective we look at the the chaos here from the you know the fail failure to have tests on hand to the insane competition between states and the federal government for basic supplies like uh, personal protective gear and masks. And I would imagine that, that that sort of coordination is exactly what the EU would be excellent at, right, with its uh, fantastically uh, well-funded cadre of technocrats who would, you know, I would, I would guess, and this is, it sounds like maybe this didn't happen, I would, I would imagine that, that, you know, Europe would be perfectly positioned to say, oh, this thing is coming down the road, our experts uh, are paying attention, and we are going to come up with a plan to make sure that Italy gets the ventilators and masks it needs early, and that we have a plan in place for Spain and Germany and so on. Um, did that happen? And, and, and if not, why not? Where was well, all well, that? The, the technocrats of the European Union tried to 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 coordinate and organize a, a more more um, sensible uh, response to the pandemic. Uh, in January, there were there were they had uh, some meetings asking, for example, uh, what was the situation of stockpile of uh, uh, health material in the member states. The answer by the member states was, we have no problem. Uh, We have masks, we have uh, ventilators, so don't worry for us. After just one month, uh, there was the mess, the chaos. And uh, the point is that the European Union has no competence on health issues. Um, The competence are uh, just for member states. They uh, they have the duty and the right to protect their citizens as they want, even uh, putting borders and blocking export for other member states, because uh, it is an international organization, not a, a sovereign state, the European Union, and uh, the treaty uh, which regulate uh, this international organization has plenty of closing clauses uh, saying. Uh, uh, in case of emergency, you can uh, uh, do what you want. Uh, 
so the point the point is that uh, uh, the, the real mess was made by member states uh, uh, inside their their country uh, and uh, uh, between them um, and uh, and uh, it's bad right now they are trying to well the European Union institutions are trying to organize something better it's not easy because everybody is quite hysterical uh, each member state each government want to keep uh, mask ventilators and so on for them um, even if they don't need it and uh, voila um, they are trying to do their best the technocrats uh, but the real power uh, is uh, at uh, national uh, level so it's like uh, i mean we do not have any Trump power to 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 take all the masks from uh, states like in uh, in America and then uh, sharing it among uh, uh, all uh, uh, the American states. There is no such power in Brussels, and that's uh, not. And, and although that power exists in the United States, it has largely been un, unused by by this administration. Uh, Rola, from where you sit in. In uh, so I'm I'm in I guess the current epicenter of the epidemic in New York or the, of the pandemic in New York. You are in Milan in what was until recently the uh, the most hardest hit place. Uh, what um what in your view uh, or, or rather who in your view is is most responsible for the the catastrophic mishandling of of the response there? Is it the Italian government? Is it Europe? Is it some some you know who who do you who do you blame? Um. Listen, in mid-March, uh, Italy political leaders accused the EU of being, you know, slow in responding to the crisis and in coming to the country's uh, help over uh, the outbreak of the epidemic. The government complained of, uh, as David said, lack of uh, solidarity among member states. And China sent help before uh, before European neighbors did, right? China, China, and Russia. Ch China, um, they did it. And um, you know, when I talk about uh, leaders complaining, I, I'm talking. Uh, I'm not just talking about complaints coming from populist leaders, but from, for example, from the same president of Italy, Sergio Mattarella, who is a staunch supporter of uh, Europeanism. So um, Italy was asking for extra supplies of medical equipment and medical masks and uh, everything was stuck at borders and member states were closing borders. But I think we should not mix up between member states and European institutions when we are talking about EU response because um, I think European solidarity eventually arrived late, that's sure, but be, without being announced by, you know, fireworks or fanfare, like it happened, as you, as we mentioned, with China and Russia, that sent uh, aid, and they did it uh, with a lot of uh, uh, of noise, also uh, moving their propaganda machines in a certain way. Um, the response, the European response, I, I think it came late, but uh, eventually, uh, for the first time in history, European Commission suspended uh, um, its strict rules on uh, public deficit. They triggered the so-called general escape clause. And uh, the central bank launched a uh, 750 billion euro uh, emergency bond plan. And uh, uh, they're going to discuss... Uh, uh, on Tuesday, um, um, measures for like 500 billions, and the parliament approved a 37 billion package from uh, from available EU funds to counter and tackle the crisis in uh, the countries that are uh, hit hardest. So, um, I mean, without all these packages and all these aids, most of the countries in Europe would not be able to um, to tackle the, the crisis and, and, and to solve uh, uh, the problems that they are facing uh, with, the, with their health care 
system and uh, and to uh, to limit uh, the the um, uh, the outbreak. So um, yes, I think member states acted in a very um, messy way, but I think we should focus on not uh, making uh, not confounding what the institutions are doing and how the member states. Uh, are um, are reacting. That says this crisis, like uh, all the European crises in the past, the debt crisis and the migration crisis in 2015, it set off all the contradictions and the weakness uh, of uh, of the union. And it's true that countries uh, and member states remain divided on how to help uh, uh, the the economy for sure. I mean, look, the you know, the European Union is the most audacious experiment in shared sovereignty in uh, in modern times. I would say, arguably ever. Uh, and uh, you know, those of us who are of an internationalist uh, bent have found it an inspiring experiment. But the way it has responded to, I'd say, every major crisis since the end of the Cold War is dispiriting. Uh, and the the three big ones that leap to mind are uh, first the the financial crisis in 2008, then the migration crisis and the concomitant rise of the authoritarian far right, uh, and now COVID-19. And in each of these instances, uh, it seems to me that um, that all the member states have resorted sort of to a nationalist crouch uh, that that they're. Uh, way of calculating their interest or their way forward has been to, uh, you know, to, to borrow a phrase from the American president, to, you know, my country first. Uh, and I'm I'm curious, is that is that impression? Do you share that impression? And if if so, was there anything that the European Union, which which is that sort of you know, it's that web of institutions, and it's also that sort of choice to cede authority voluntarily to those institutions in the interest of the, of the common good, uh, even when you don't have to. Uh, is there anything that group of entities could have done uh, to, to take more power or authority or momentum in, in responding to these crises? I don't agree with, the, with your, 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 your judgment of the past. I would say that uh, the European Union uh, has managed quite well all the crises uh, of the last 20 years. Um, can you imagine Italy uh, in front of a, a financial crisis as uh, the one that uh, uh, touched all over the world in 2008 without the European Central Bank, which means the German Central Banks? That's the point. Um, the Italy uh, would have been uh, uh, in a much uh, worse uh, um, situation right now because uh, uh, probably it would have defaulted in 2010 or 11 or 12. And um, so people would have not got his salary, their salaries, their uh, pensions and so on. Um, it was difficult, but at the end, uh, uh, Europe managed to, to 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 find a way to uh, to put the crisis uh, in the history books, the financial crisis. I mean, um, on migration, uh, Europe played a major role to close borders with uh, uh, Libya and with uh, Turkey. Uh, putting money for member states. Um, you can uh, uh, have a moral judgment of uh, what they have done uh, because they stopped to uh, accept uh, the majority of uh, uh, refugees from uh, Syria or from uh, African countries. But the flow of migrants uh, stopped and uh, it was difficult it took uh, quite some time, but at the end of the day, uh, the, the mig migration crisis uh, was put in the uh, history's uh, books. Uh, I don't know if uh, with the COVID will be the same. 
but what I'm seeing from Brussels is a, a group of uh, technocrats, as you call it, them. In fact, they are politicians. They have no power uh, and they cannot uh, um, invent their power uh, in uh, just a night. Uh, they are trying to uh, coordinate uh, a more uh, sensible response to the health crisis. And at the same time, they are putting a lot of money uh, to help member states to manage the uh, economic crisis that is already there. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't call it a success for the moment, but uh, it could be effective uh, tomorrow. We'll be right back after this break. At a time when the focus of politics is on being the loudest voice and not the most informed, the Century Foundation delivers thoughtful, evidence-based policy leadership with purpose. I'm Lucy Muirhead, Chief Strategy Officer at the Century Foundation. We work to reduce inequality, foster opportunity, and promote peace and security, carrying on a tradition that TCF's founder began in 1919. In the century ahead, we'll continue to prioritise rigour over reactivity, elevate the best ideas and most diverse voices, and never lose sight of what it takes to make an impact. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes. I'm here with David Carreta and Rola Scolari, and we're talking about how the European Union has uh, handled the COVID-19 crisis and what lessons internationalists can draw from Europe's performance. Uh, before the break, David was uh, uh, presenting a, a sort of more optimistic take on how uh, uh, the European Union has responded to the radical crises uh, that have tested it over the last decade. Uh, Rola, you, uh, I think, wanted to elaborate or maybe disagree? Actually, I want to agree because um, uh, I also think that um, uh, eventually uh, Europe come around uh, uh, and uh, it did it already in the past because the uh, European Union each time is under pressure, improvises solution. And it happened with the debt crisis and it happened with the migration crisis in the past. So um, I think that um, even if uh, uh, Brussels acted late and slowly, um, I I don't think member states would be able to um, survive this crisis without the help uh, of uh, uh, of the union. Um, I just want to uh, make you think about something. There's a gentleman sitting in London. Uh, his name is Boris Johnson. He's the guy uh, who was saying uh, uh, take back control and he's Mr. Brexit. And these days what he's doing is asking um, uh, doctors coming from all over the union to stay in uh, Great Britain and uh, not to leave uh, the hospitals because its own um, healthcare system is uh, um, under pressure. So, um, yeah, one of those foreign NHS doctors is my brother. You see? So, I mean, this is also Europe. We have to think about this. Europe is uh, doctors from all over the member states working and living in other member states and uh, working for a common good in this uh, uh, very moment. So, um, I think uh, uh, it's important uh, to... to uh, understand that the, 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 what, what Europe can do, it's not just uh, in terms of uh, economical aid and packages and uh, working through institutions, is also uh, what the Union has done uh, in the past decades with free movement and the possibility for workers from Italy to be in UK now uh, helping with uh, uh, the um, epidemic and with the outbreak break. Well, so this brings me to the, the question I wanted to, to ask you both uh, in this section of our conversation, uh, which is in this, this radical experiment in pooled sovereignty that is the European Union, uh, what, what works and what are the failure points? Um, and, it, and it seems to me that uh, a lot of the debate over this, including during Brexit, uh, 
ended up pitting sort of idealists against people who might have shared the same ideals, but were just observing, you know, the sort of real limits of what people are willing to give up. And a lot of the time you would hear sort of pro EU people say, well, if only the member states would just be willing to give up, so, you know, surrender X, Y, and Z power to Brussels. And of course, in, in reality, uh, you know, this isn't a judgment, just an observation. In reality, almost no government is going to give up its control of its borders, let's say, or control of its military, or even control over the bits of its uh, economic policy that remain sovereign uh, to Brussels. And that's, you know, that's not a moral judgment. I mean, maybe it has moral dimensions, but in any case, that's that's the behavior of states. So we've now seen this over decades. States aren't just going to sort of vanish into some international government that takes over their functions. And that ends up being the friction point. Uh, so, uh, you know, when, 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 you know, the, the reason why I'm interested in this now is because the, the, the world is at a, at another crisis point and people are starting to ask what are better ways, uh, to, to have States either collaborate with each other or, uh, you know, share resources or share decision-making and sometimes share power. Uh, and I think the EU is really the only meaningful model that we have to look at. So that's why it's important to identify what are the limits of this and what are the sort of core elements of th that have worked uh, so we can build on those. So I know that's a lot of questions and, and maybe we'll go back to you, David, uh, uh, to, to start us off uh, with what are the, you know, what are the bits that you say you know, at its core are successes and what are the bits at its core that are, uh, either misconstrued or, or don't work and, and should, you know, be, be taken into account in designing the architecture of a system like this. Uh, thank you for, for, for the question. Um, the point is that, uh, um, the European Union, uh, as you said, is quite unique. Um, it's, um, a mix of, uh, um, member states, institution, and so on. It's quite complicated. Uh, we don't have a federal uh, government. Um, uh, they, the project was developed in, um, I would say, the opposite way of a national state. So uh, competencies on foreign policy, on uh, uh, defense, on uh, economic, uh, uh, at the beginning were all on member states, not uh, in Brussels. Um, and they tried to, uh, uh, to unite in a very technocratic way. So uh, putting money on agriculture and uh, uh, making a very big internal market, which mean uh, standards uh, for everybody. Um, then uh, at a certain point in the 80s and 90s of the last century, Europe took a much more uh, important role um, in uh, member states, in, uh, in the world and so on. Um, and uh, people started to say, well, we need uh, democracy in Europe. And uh, we need a more political Europe. And when you put politics in a technocratic uh, um, institution, uh, you start to have problems. Especially if this institution does, doesn't have any real power on important things like economic, like uh, defense, like foreign policy. Um, and today the problem is, uh, is the same. Today the, the real problem is politics. Uh, we have 27 member states, uh, 27 governments, and 27 uh, uh, oppositions in, uh, uh, in Europe playing politics. And the best uh, way to avoid responsibility in front of uh, uh, each uh, national uh, um, electorate is uh, uh, putting the blame in, on Brussels. Uh, hey, we have a problem. Where is Europe? Uh, hey, uh, there is a pandemic. Where is Europe? There's a authoritarian government in Hungary turning a democracy into a dictatorship. Where is Europe? 
uh, of course, where is Europe? Uh, uh, the, 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 but no, I, I didn't see any uh, national member states uh, 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 which took uh, uh, sanctions against Hungary. So, I mean, I mean, uh, they, they have the power to cut uh, uh, trade with Hungary if they want, but nobody wants to cut uh, trade with Hungary. They're just saying, uh, well, where is Europe? Which is uh, good question, huh? and Europe is not reacting uh, strong enough uh, in front of Orban. Uh, uh, um. Isn't that a huge failure point, though, David? I mean, this is this is where I, you know, I mean, I, I'm not alone in having invested maybe unrealistic hopes in what a, a, a sort of, uh, you know, imagined entity like the EU could do to, to curb the real behavior of, of states, but you know, I'm, I'm disappointed, um, that it hasn't either tried, uh, or been effective at rolling back, uh, really the imposition of, of a dictatorship in, in, in the, in the heart of Europe. And I'm not sure what it could do other than maybe use its bully pulpit to at least condemn it. Uh, but it seems just like with the migration crisis, just like with Turkey, just like with the borders, uh, whenever, um, whenever push comes to shove and it's, a question of giving up money for principle, and I don't mean just moral principle, but political principle. Uh, the EU, as a as a collective, and the member states have zero uh, zero spine. And I mean, I think of you know Italy making huge uh, economic deals with Egypt right after Egypt you know tortured and killed uh, uh, an Italian national, and that was a very sort of gross and simple illustration of commercial interests versus political principle. Um, and I think it's analogous to the response to Hungary or the response to the, the migration crisis where the EU basically paid Turkey to, to, to keep people on their side of the border in, in a bribe that really had no uh, uh, positive policy content, uh, but was expedient and, and I would say ran really counter to not just European principles, but European laws. Uh, it's difficult to answer to your question because you are mixing up everything. Yes, that's what I do. Yeah, sorry, yeah, but, <laughs> but but the point is that I mean, Europe is a cooperation uh, project. Is not uh, and and what if you have one member state that decide not to cooperate, you have a problem. The 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 machine will not work, and uh, that's what we are seeing in uh, uh, different uh, uh, crises and so on, but at the end of the day, the interest, uh, the common interests prevail and they, 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 they manage to, 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 to find uh, a way forward. And uh, you mentioned Hungary. It's, it's true. It's true. There is no reaction right, right now to the emergency law adopted by the parliament in Budapest, in, unfortunately. Um, and they, the European Union uh, um, institution uh, reacted quite slowly to the Orban uh, uh, history of uh, grabbing power uh, during the last uh, uh, 15 years, I, I guess. Uh, but there are rules, and uh, they, they started what we called in a very technocratic way uh, Article 7 procedure, which means that you could be suspended from the European Union, stop money flow flowing and so on. Uh, Brussels started this process, but there are rules. And the rules say that if one member state object to this sanction, uh, you cannot adopt this sanction. And there is another member state, which is Poland, saying we will not approve sanctions against Hungary because we are in the same uh, uh, situation in terms of uh, 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 autocratic behavior. Um, so uh, we have rules and we have to respect those rules. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and which means that Brussels, uh, the Donald Trump of Europe. Do you know the name of Donald Trump of Europe, by the way? Who is the Donald Trump of Europe? 
Is I don't it know. Donald Tusk? I don't know. Do, do, you know, do, do you know the name of the president of the commission? Isn't it Donald Tusk? No. Mm-hmm. No. It's Ursula von der Leyen. Oh, right. She's the, the German, the the German, German kind of right-winger. defense minister. Yeah. But we have also... She's kind of a family values right-winger with, with some pretty terrible ideas, as I recall. Um, she is progressive for, for, for a German. Uh, uh, and that... that the former uh, Donald Tusk uh, is a Belgian guy called uh, Charles Michel. Do you know who is Charles Michel? I mean, his you history. Embarrass me a lot on my podcast. No, by, no, uh... no. <laughs> but that's the point. I mean, you you know who is Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson and maybe uh, Giuseppe Conte, but. You don't know the people who are leading Europe because they don't have so much power. They they are in the hands of national member states, 27. And each member state needs to cope with uh, its internal opposition. So we are in a situation right now uh, with Italy asking money from Brussels. And the opposition is saying, well... Uh, Brussels is very bad with us because they don't give us money. But in the Netherlands, they will vote in one year time. You have the opposite. So the populistic opposition to the government is saying, oh, 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 we don't have to give money to the Italians because they are Italians. They will spend it in pizza and cafe and uh, uh, Campari. And we don't want that the Netherlands taxpayers pay for the Campari of the Italians. So that's to say that uh, uh, it's a co- very complicated project. And the more you put uh, competencies and uh, uh, sovereignty uh, in Brussels, the more you will have problems like that. Because we don't have a constitution, uh, Europe is not a federal state. Is, it's an international organization, and at the end of the day, it's the national politics that count more than uh, the uh, Brussels bubble uh, uh, policy. We'll be right back. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply, and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. I'm Thanasi Kambanas. I'm talking with David Careta and Rola Scolari about Europe and what we can learn from uh, what David just identified for us as an international institution rather than some kind of federal entity. Uh, Rola, uh, let's start with you uh, in this final section of our conversation. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on what uh, what we can learn from this, and you know, especially after this crisis, if we're imagining a. Europe that works better, or if we're imagining other international organizations, be it the WHO or the UN, uh, or you know, you name it, uh, functioning better. What uh, what do we take from the Euro- European record at this point, and what what do you think is is a plausible way to do this better? Um, there's um, um, there's something that uh, uh, European Commission President uh, Ursula von der Leyen declared a few days ago uh, that surprised uh, uh, many people and many commentators in Italy. Uh, She said, um, Europe suffers with Italy and Europe will help Italy. Um, uh, So many commentators reacted saying, wait, Italy is Europe, is a founding state of Europe. And uh, uh, so Europe should help itself. It's not helping Italy. Europe is helping Itself. So it seems to me that uh, in terms of the European project, uh, with the passing of time, um, we lost, uh, um, we lost uh, the values uh, on which the 
uh, project was uh, uh, first founded in a certain way because uh, it's true that when everybody's thinking of Europe uh, uh, in the single member states is thinking about um, technocrats sitting in Brussels and bureaucratic elites Still, they are elected uh, because the parliament is elected by member states. But the idea is the idea of uh, uh, technocrats sitting far away, uh, making messy laws uh, and uh, talking about money. But the European Union, the idea, the first project of the European Union was not just based on finance and uh, economical aid and economical structure. When uh, the founding father was ta were talking back about uh, uh, the idea of a union, they were talking about um, a common sentiment, common values. When Churchill first spoke about United States of Europe, it was back in 1946. He was sp speaking about a European family, liberty and freedom, and uh, and and something based uh, like a, a project that was rejecting. Uh, authoritarian regimes and supporting democracies. And here we go back uh, uh, to uh, Hungary and, and what happened with Orban. Uh, we forget that the union was not just born on financial and economical uh, basis, but on a common sentiment. And I think the pandemic is an occasion to, in a certain way, uh, uh, you know, we find ourselves at the crossroads. So is it true, like Populis said, that um, the European Union is useless and uh, it's, it's just a headache for uh, the member state or uh, the European Union is the right way to collaborate international, uh, uh, on an international level to solve crises? Uh, I think we have to start from here, and um, and the crisis in in Hungary. It's not just a, a side story of the bigger story of this uh, uh, emergency, this uh, outbreak. It's like very important that Europe focus also on what is going on in Hungary, because one of the main purpose of the union is to uh, sustain liberal democracy and, uh, um, and, and remember that the basis on which it was founded is, uh, is supporting liberal democracies. And, and I think we should really, really focus on this aspect of, of the crisis. And uh, of course, the financial and economical one, it's important because we are going to be in an economic crisis. We are already in an economic crisis, but we don't have to let the pandemic be uh, the um, justification for like populist uh, uh, and autocrats to, uh, um, to erode our liberties. At the same time, we can't compel uh, states to give up power they don't want to give up. And the, you know, the League of Nations collapsed because the nations involved didn't actually want to pool power uh, to the extent that the UN was successful during the Cold War. It was it was on a voluntary basis. Uh, and I think the, the sort of best successes of the EU uh, have similarly been uh, on matters where the powerful states in the EU saw it in their interests to, to genuinely uh, invest in that shared power. Uh, and that that sort of leads to to my my one of my big big fears or big worries, which is that um, you know I do think bad uh, bad uh, trajectories unfortunately can be sustainable. Uh, so we we could see a sort of lowest common denominator uh, Europe continue for some time, where you know Europe can't do anything to stop European nations from turning into dictatorships, but it can do some things to you know pull back, for example, after this pandemic or after a financial crisis to pull back, uh, from, from, from a brink. Um, and that's, you know, that's better than nothing, but it's not a transformative way forward. Uh, so some of the thoughts that this raises for me is, um, you know, it, it, one, is there a way to, uh, set a, a different sort of, to set a different sort of bar that does not trigger 
people's fears of having their autonomy or, or, or national sovereignty encroached even when they pool uh, resources? And um, uh, two, does there have to be some kind of cataclysmic event, uh, and maybe this epidemic is it, uh, in order to renew the, uh, a sense of there being some real benefit in giving up uh, a national power to, to a, a supranational institution? Uh, I, 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 I can agree with you. I, I, I would agree with you. Um, uh, I think that, uh, I mean, the, the, the best way to, to, to demonstrate to people the benefits of Europe is, uh, uh, is stopping to have Europe. Uh, we can have a European day without Europe, and we are living it uh, right now with the COVID pandemic uh, day by day. Um, we have borders. Um, Italy could face a major financial crisis in the markets. Um, Hungary could uh, lost could lose a lot of the money that received from the European Union because uh, all the money will be concentrated in. Uh, other issues uh, uh, related to the economic crisis of other member states. Um, um, at the end of the day, uh, it could this this crisis could benefit because uh, uh, what we are seeing is, is member states, uh, national capitals, isolating themselves uh, like people are doing in their apartment. The question is. Uh, uh, Will 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 the people understand that it's better to live together outside uh, our apartments, or uh, they would start to think that uh, uh, being uh, isolated uh, and watching uh, Netflix is better than going to do the cinema or to the theater and so on. Um, I hope that this uh, uh, COVID nineteen crisis will uh, uh, will uh, uh, will push people thinking what the benefits are of staying outside and to be open to the uh, world. Um, the same uh, for 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 Europe. I mean, for member states. Uh, at the end of the day, if they can help each other, and they will find a, a more uh, a sustainable solution um, to the economic crisis and to the, uh, um, the, the, the pandemic. If they don't uh, uh, stay uh, together, uh, they will face uh, uh, more problems. That's the point. Um, I mean, we have seen it. Uh, Hungary uh, one month ago decided to uh, reintroduce border control with other member states, but the the virus, uh, uh, the coronavirus, uh, uh, went in Hungary even with the borders. The same for other countries. Um, the fact is that uh, a rational choice would be to cooperate. Uh, an emotional choice is to close border and uh, uh, try to uh, manage uh, the crisis alone. Um, a lot of government are uh, receiving support from their uh, public opinion, but in a couple of months, I can imagine a very different situation if they not if they are not able to 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 cooperate because the consequences will be very uh, hard for uh, uh, each and everyone. It's it's uh, even shocking in the United States, which is, is a federal system, to see the huge disparities between different regions and, you know, red states and blue states or uh, states that are currently an epicenter of the uh, pandemic and others which are going to be, unfortunately, uh, a month from now. Uh, and one of the... One of the Things this brings to mind is, um, you know, I think that internationalists and free traders and and unionists have not done a good job of of promoting 
an idea of local capacity and security uh, that's an alternative to the one of the chauvinists. Uh, so in other words, to, to, uh, to give resources and power locally, uh, let's say in the form of, of you know, border patrol uh, capability or uh, health sector resources or uh, uh, the, kinds of, the kinds of things that make, uh, you know, in the EU case countries or in the United States' case um, states feel like they're going to be okay uh, in, in a crisis. Uh, and I think if, if you succeed at giving people real security uh, as opposed to uh, a sort of simulacrum of it, then they're also maybe going to be more willing to surrender central decision-making power to Washington or Brussels uh, if they feel like they have the resources locally to protect themselves from, be it from a pandemic or from, uh, you know, the economic challenges of, of a wave of, of migration or, or whatever the, the, the challenge is, uh, that would make them less susceptible to the, uh, you know, the proposals of the right-wing nativists and, and chauvinists. Now, that hasn't, that's not an idea that's been tested, um, and it might be naive, right? It might, it might just be that in, in real life, it's always uh, easier, uh, rather, in real life, it might always be the nihilists and the secessionists and the chauvinists who have an advantage because they have a project of erasure, uh, and it's the institutionalists and the unifiers who are at a disadvantage because we're always talking about long-term shared common good uh, that feels more abstract uh, and and you know not immediate. I think we're we're running towards the end. So do you do each of you want to take a minute to uh, to sort of sum up uh, uh, your your you know big lessons learned from all this or your your final thoughts? So, yes, I, I'd like to add something. Um, Donald Trump's strategy of America first is shared uh, by most of the national populist movements around the world. And, and this is exact, exactly what threatens um, every uh, uh, shared sovereignty project. Um, the, the idea of... Uh, uh, each member state first uh, is something that uh, Europe uh, um, cannot uh, cannot tolerate more than uh, than this. I mean, every everybody working for uh, itself uh, is uh, threatens to uh, to Europe, of course, and this is what is prevailing uh, at the time in a lot of member states because we know. Uh, that a lot of uh, populist movements are um, governing and uh, are winning elections around the union. Um, in um, in terms of uh, history, I mean, I, I still think the EU project it's it's absolutely worth defending, and this is clear. Um, I mean, we never saw. Um, uh, the in in European history, the current level of security, prosperity, and cooperation and freedom. I mean, in seven decades since the end of the Second World War, Europe uh, prospered, uh, and this is thanks to the European Union. Um, and uh, as uh, uh, Timothy Garton Ash uh, wrote some months ago on The Guardian, I think he was writing about Brexit. In a long historical perspective, this is the best Europe we have ever had. So uh, obviously the project is perfectible, but uh, at the time being, um, it gave Europe and European the, the longest period of prosperity and security in their entire history. And uh, uh, even in front of this crisis, it's proving that uh, the collaboration between states, even if it's uh, uh, full of uh, uh, holes uh, and, and, uh, and problems, it's still the only solution and uh, uh, it eventually can work. David, you want to close this out with your final thought? I agree with Rolla. Um, Europe has the most advanced welfare state in the world. Um, if you think that um, 
six million Americans asked for um, unemployment uh, last week. Um, we don't have this problem right now in, in, right now in, in Europe because we have systems uh, which guarantees your uh, uh, employment and it's paid by the states. Why? Because uh, we are rich countries and uh, uh, most of them, uh, I would say all of them, uh, are so rich right now thanks to the European Union. Then you have politics. And uh, politics is very toxic when uh, it's not based on facts, um, on analysis, on uh, the real world, and it's just something for power. Um, do you remember 2008? Uh, the reaction to the financial crisis uh, was quite huge in terms of international cooperation. Um, President Bush and then President Obama uh, with the, uh, the French president uh, Nicolas Sarkozy at that time, Gordon Brown in, Go Gordon Brown in the UK, they convened uh, the G20, the G7. The Chinese were at the table and they chose to cooperate uh, in front of that uh, crisis. Uh, Today, we have a, a, a situation that is completely different. We have no G20, no G7. Uh, we have nothing in terms of international cooperation. In Europe, we have problems. We have member states that are uh, going alone uh, uh, in front of the pandemic. But we have cooperation. And if they... The member states managed to uh, to to continue on that way, so the cooperation to solve in a pragmatic way uh, the problem that will arise from the uh, health and uh, economic crisis. I think that Europe will be in a better shape than others, uh, and for others, I mean also the U.S. Well. David and Rola, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think we'll have to leave it there, but this was a longer than usual edition because you had so many interesting things to say. Uh, and I do think that figuring out uh, what, what works and doesn't in Europe is probably one of the most important things we can do uh, as we hopefully try and build a better international system after Trump and after COVID-19, hopefully both of which so you already soon. You already give him for... You already decided that the well, there, election there will is, be an, uh, is Nope, written. there will be an after Trump. I just don't know if it's going to be next year or in five years. Uh, but there, there will be an after at some point. Uh, so with that... So uh, they said in Russia. <laughs> uh, Rola Scolari, a journalist at Il Foglio and La Stampa in Milan, and uh, David Carreta from Brussels, uh, a reporter for Radio Radicale, and also Ifolio, thank you both uh, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you enjoy what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. See you next time.